Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We will continue our study this evening in 1 John chapter 2. And I want to begin with a question for you. Just imagine a situation that you come home uh, one night, one evening, and you see uh, not just police cars parked in front of your neighbor's house, but you see the FBI and maybe something more. And as things unfold, what you discover is that the person who was your neighbor, the person living next door to you, actually turned out to be a spy for a foreign adversary. And you walk into your house as you find this out and you remark to a family member, you know, you never really know someone. See, that person blended in. That person seemed like a normal neighbor, the kind of person you'd expect to live next to, and yet all along, it was a fake. It was a facade. That person was pretending. Well, this evening, as we look at First John chapter 2, we're going to take that illustration and then turn it around, not asking the question about how can we know about others, but how can we know about ourselves? That is, how can we know that we know Jesus and that we are known to him? And you see, the difference is that in this situation, we become like potentially like that spy next door. If we're not really in Christ, if we're not really known to him, if we don't really know him. Or we are not like a spy, but we're actually genuinely the neighbor. We're genuinely a person who knows Christ and is known by him. And the question is, how can we know? How can we discern this in our own lives? Just as with that example of the spy next door, you want to know, how could I have seen this coming? Well, as we look in our own lives, how can we know that we know Christ? So if you found your place in 1 John chapter 2, would you follow along with me beginning in verse 3? And I'm going to read to verse 11. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening and we ask that you would encourage us through your word, that you would assure us through your word, that you would cause us to be encouraged to know that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, if indeed we hear his word and we receive it and we keep it. Father, we know that you've given us this letter from your servant John so that we might know that we have eternal life. So we pray that you would write it in our hearts in such a way that we do, in fact, go away from here encouraged and assured of the life that we have in him. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you to turn to 1 John 5, to the end of this book, and I want to give you some context for our text uh, this evening. In fact, the verse that we're going to read in verse 1 John 5, 13 is relevant for all that we're reading and all that we're looking at as we proceed through this letter. Because here at the end of this letter, John tells us why he has written these things. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose for this letter is that we might be assured that we have eternal life. And there, John speaks about knowing something in terms of knowing a fact, knowing that, yes, indeed, those of you who have come to Christ, those of you who have persevered in faith, those of you who have, who have remained, you have eternal life. And John wants us to know that we can know this, that we can be assured of this fact. And one of the ways that we are assured of this fact, as we see in 1 John 2, is that we are assured that we, in fact, know Jesus, that we know God through Christ, to put it more clearly. And here, this knowledge that John is speaking about is different. It's not so much factual knowledge, but it's knowing in terms of knowing a person, saying, I know you all now that I've spent several months with you here in this church. We know one another in terms of relationships. It's not just a matter of knowing you in terms of knowing about you, knowing facts about you, or, or having heard your name or read about it. No, it's, you're, you're known to me and I'm known to you. And in the same way, John wants us to be sure that we know Christ, that we have come to know him. And in this way, we're going to know in terms of factual knowledge that we have eternal life by knowing that we are in him. And so he begins by giving us a test. How might we know that we have come to know, know God? How might we know that we have come to know God through Christ? The answer is if we keep his commandments. You see, here John gives us a simple test. The person who knows God is one who keeps his word, the one who follows his commandments. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase? When you hear the phrase, keeps his commandments? Probably your mind runs to the Ten Commandments. Maybe you think of the Mosaic Law in its entirety. And you're starting to wonder, what exactly does he mean in terms of keeping his commandments? You look at your own life and you recognize that you and I can say this of myself, of course, too. We can all say this of ourselves. None of us has fully kept God's law. None of us keeps God's commandments perfectly. Is he saying then, is John telling us that we know that we've come to know Christ if we've begun to live that perfect life in full obedience to everything that God has commanded? Certainly not. For that would invalidate all that he wrote in chapter 1 about confessing our sins about making a practice of confessing our sins. It would invalidate what he's written in the two verses immediately prior to this, where he acknowledges the reality that we will sin, saying, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. No, what John is saying is that the pattern of our life is one that is marked by obedience to Christ's commandments. Even though we will fail... And even though we will stumble, as Christians, 
We know that we have come to know Christ because we begin to live in accordance with his will and his word as it has been revealed to us. It becomes a new pattern of life. This is a way that Jesus spoke with his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross. Turn over with me to John chapter 14. And we're going, you, you might as well hold your finger here in the Gospel of John because we're going to be back and forth as we see that much of what John writes in this letter is taken from the things that Jesus taught his disciples in his final hours with them before the cross. Well, here in John 14, we see the same idea. In verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And John goes on a little bit later down in verse 23 and says something very similar. Here, Jesus is answering as Judas, not Iscariot, asks him a question where Judas says, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He says again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so you see that in that upper room, in his time with the disciples before he went to the cross, Jesus taught this very thing that John is now teaching us that the one who responds to Christ's word with obedience is the one who has come to know him. We're going to see a specific way in which that plays out in our lives as we continue in the passage. We'll get there. But we need to recognize that the very first test by which we know that we have come to know Christ is that our life is changed. We live a new kind of life, not one of perfection, but one where the direction has completely and irrevocably changed. No longer are we directed to the things of this world. No longer are we directed to our past desires and passions. But now, the whole manner of our life has changed as we seek to order it in conformity to the will of our Savior. That's the first test by which we know that someone has come to know Christ. And John gives us a negative aspect of this then in verse 4, or that is the, the, the flip side of it. There are those who will say that they know Christ. There are those who will say that they know God. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We saw in chapter 1 that the one who denies his sin makes God a liar. That is not to say that God becomes a liar. Rather, that person makes him out to be a liar. But that person is committing a, a grave sin by denying his own sin because he's saying that what God has said about me, that I'm a sinner, is false. He's essentially, what John says is there, he's accusing God of lying. Well, here we see something a little bit different but related. This person who makes God a liar now, in this case, becomes a liar himself. If someone says, I know God, but that person does not keep God's commandments, that person is a liar. And again, here we don't talk about perfection. We talk about that settled pattern of life whereby someone says, I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to live my life however I want, 
however I please, no matter what that person knows in terms of doctrine, no matter how much of Scripture that person knows, that person does not know Christ because that person has rejected that word, no matter how much of it that person knows. We see a similar idea in Romans chapter 6. There in Romans chapter 6, Paul says this at the beginning, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That is, are we to simply embrace a life of wanton sin so that we might receive more grace from the Lord and God might be glorified by this? And the answer Paul gives in verse 2, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here Paul's talking about the change that God has produced in our life using some different terms about having died to sin and being raised with Christ to a new life, being born again, that is. And John is speaking about the same thing, though he speaks about it with different language and different imagery. He's speaking about that complete and total change that occurs in the life of a believer, in the life of a person who's come to Christ, whereby they embrace a new pattern of life. So the person who says, nope, I don't want that new pattern of life, shows in himself that he has never really come to know God. It doesn't matter what he claims. And you see why this is so important in the context that we've discussed in the weeks before, uh, in, the, in the weeks past. John is writing to a church that has been, been confronted with this problem whereby false teachers have arisen and they've taught a false gospel and they've caused a church split where they've led some out of the church. And they're claiming, these individuals are claiming that they have a relationship with God that they know God's will, that they have special revelation from God even. And John wants the people who have remained, those true believers who have remained to know they're liars, and you, you have a simple way to know that they're liars. They reject the clear will of, their, of our Lord, of our Maker. They reject His word and His will. And so they are not really knowers of God. But then again, on the flip side, is, is John's style, where he goes from the positive to the negative to the positive. He comes back to that positive statement in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, this here is an idea that's parallel to keeping his commandments. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see that kind of interchange in the uh, discourse from John 13 through John 16 as Jesus is teaching his disciples, speaking about keeping his commandments and keeping his word back and forth in that kind of language. John is using the language that he learned from Jesus himself. And that person, he says, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This idea, love of God, it could refer to different things, but here the most likely meaning is that it refers to our love for God. Our love for God is perfected if we keep Christ's word. That it is, it is brought to its completeness. It's brought to its fullness. We ought to remind ourselves that the two great commandments that formed the foundation for all of the law were commandments that were given in the terminology of love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second great commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law was undergirded by this idea that the, that the, that the life that is pleasing to God is a life that is marked by love. And this too is true in the new covenant. Here, 
we see that first idea of love for God. The person who keeps God's word, in him, the love of God is perfected. And that's what Jesus, that's what we heard Jesus teaching in the upper room discourse. The one who loves me will keep my commandments. Again, by this we may know that we are in him. Here again, he uses a different phrase, a different uh, manner of speech to convey the same idea. Knowing him is similar, is the same as being in him. Being in God and, and having God in us. That is the, the characteristic mark of the Christian life. That we have come into a relationship with Christ that can be described as union with him. As being in him and him being in us. That we have the spirit of God within us. That God works in us. That's what Jesus was saying in that upper room when Philip said, how will you show yourself, how will you make yourself known to us but not to the world? And Jesus' answer concerns the fact that he and the Father will come and he will make his home with his disciples in us and we in him. That's this newfound relationship that characterizes the Christian, one that is marked by union with the triune God. And so we know that we're in him. If we abide in him, he says whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And once again, he calls to our mind ideas from that upper room discourse. Here in John 15, Jesus uses the imagery of a vine to describe the relationship that should exist between his disciples and himself. In John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You see what Jesus is saying there? He is the vine. And if we are in him, we ought to be like branches on that vine that produce fruit, grapes or dates or something pleasant, something good. And the fruit is the obedience to Christ's commandments. That ought to be the characteristic of our life if we are in him, just as a branch that is in a vine ought to be fruitful. And if that branch is not fruitful, what does the vine dresser do? He comes and he removes that one so a new one may grow in its place and be fruitful. You start to begin to see why the Christian life must be characterized by obedience. Because it's not just about knowing Jesus from afar. It's a knowledge of him that is also characterized as being in him. And so he tells us to abide in him. In verse 4 of chapter 15 in John's gospel, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so John again takes up this language of abiding, saying that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now we need to make sure that we have the proper relationship here. The, rela the relationship between root and fruit. It's important to recognize that this language conveys the fact that we don't produce the fruit. We don't do it by our willpower. We don't do it by our strength. We don't do it by our wisdom. We don't do it by our strong commitment. God is the one who produces the fruit in us. 
The fruit comes from being in the vine, from abiding, abiding in Christ. And it is a necessary result of being in him. And so the fruit in our life, the obedience that we exemplify in our lives, that is not the thing that qualifies us to be in relationship with Christ. It's not the thing that validates us so that we might be in relationship with Christ. It is the proof, the evidence, that we indeed are in relationship with Christ. But we come into that relationship by grace and grace alone, through faith. It's important to see that and have that relationship right in our minds. John is not teaching a gospel of works. John is teaching a gospel of grace. And one of the ways that we see God's grace play out in our lives is in the fruit that God produces in our lives. That is the obedience of faith. And so John calls us to live this kind of life, life that is characterized by abiding in Christ, life that is characterized by knowing God, life that is characterized by keeping His word and His commandments, but not in our own strength, but by abiding in Him and by trusting that He indeed is in us. And as we do this, then we're reminded that if we abide in Him, we ought to walk in the way in which He walked. Just as a branch in the vine doesn't produce fruit that's alien to the vine, uh, a, vi uh, a, a vine that would normally produce grapes and a branch in that vine should not produce figs. No, no, no. The branch in the vine that produces grapes ought to produce grapes. We ought to walk in the way in which Christ walked. And when we think about that, and when we reflect on that, then we begin to see what it is that John means when he calls us to keep his commandments. Though Christ did fully and perfectly live his life in accord with the Ten Commandments, and though he did fully and perfectly live his life in accordance with the law of Moses, fulfilling it in every way, John does not seem to have those things in mind. Because what we see then in verse 7 and following also, once again, refers us back to the things that Jesus taught in that upper room. Rather, what John seems to have in mind is the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples during that period of instruction, namely, that they should love one another. You'll find this in John 13. John 13, right at the head of this upper room discourse, and here in John 13, verse 31 and following, we read this. When he had gone out, which is a reference to Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then think about this then. We're told that we ought to walk in the way in which he walked. 
And we're told that we have this new commandment, that we love one another. And when we consider the life of Christ and we say, what is the way in which he walked? The word that should come to our mind above all other words is love. Love was the manner of his life. In this we know love, John will tell us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Gave his life for us. Christ's life from first to last was characterized by love for others. So when John speaks about keeping the commandments of Christ, ultimately he's speaking about that command, that new commandment, that we love one another. This commandment, of course, as I've already said, sums up the whole of the law. Love for God and love for neighbor, that's all of it. And every other commandment flows out of that. And though we're not bound to keep the law that was given to Moses, we are still bound to fulfill the two great commandments. We just fulfill it in different ways, in a different context, in light of Christ's coming. But we're still commanded to love, to love God and to love one another. But why does John refer to this as an old commandment and a new commandment? He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Here, most likely, John is not speaking of the fact that this commandment goes all the way back to the law, even though it does, but rather it goes all the way back to the beginning of the gospel testimony that the apostles received from Christ and proclaimed. Those texts that we were just reading from Jesus' instruction to his disciples, when he gave them that new commandment from the beginning of their discipleship, Christ taught them the way of love. And when they first testified to these early believers, these people who first came to Christ, these churches there, and planted these churches and shared the gospel with them and taught them the way of Christ, they taught them the same thing. They taught them the way of love. And so from the very first moment that these Christians came to know Christ, they were learning the way of love. It was an old commandment to them. And this is an important point because, again, remember, John is writing to a church that has been confronted by false teachers, false teachers who are claiming that they are the ones who have the relationship with God and that people should look to them and not to the apostles and not to John. And John's saying, our message hasn't changed. We've been saying the same thing we've always been saying. God is love, and you're called to live a life of love. And that's what we learned from our Lord. So it's an old commandment. And yet the old commandment is a new commandment. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What is John saying here then? How is this a new commandment then? Again, if the law that was given to Moses was founded in the command to love, God and to love neighbor, how is this commandment new? Why does Jesus in the upper room call it a new commandment? Why does John here repeat that and say this commandment is new? He gives us the reason right here. The reason why this is a new commandment is what? Because it is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
One of the things that we need to recognize about the life in which we live is that we already experience the benefits of eternity. That the age to come, to use this phrase, has invaded this present age. That is, with the coming of Christ, the heavenly kingdom has come. And there's an overlap between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdoms of this world are represented by the darkness, and they are what? They're passing away. They had their beginning and they will have their end, but that end is not yet. But the kingdom of heaven has already begun. It began when Jesus went proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that day has already dawned and it's already a reality. And one of the realities of that kingdom is that God now gives us the ability to do these things which he's calling us to do. You, you know, in the, under the old covenant, when God gave the people of Israel the law, he gave them a clear indication, a clear instruction, a clear testimony that showed them this is how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. But the law did not come with power. That is, the law could not constrain the people to obedience. It could not empower them to obedience. It could not produce the obedience, the faithfulness that they so needed. But with Christ's coming, and with his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the sending of the Spirit, God has given us all that we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. And so that, that privilege of that heavenly kingdom we experience it even now. We experience it in this new life. And John describes it by saying that the darkness, that way of life, that old kingdom, that darkness, it is passing away. But the true light, it's already shining. We already have the power of Christ in us, working in us and through us to bring glory to God our Father. And so this commandment is new in this sense. It's new that we are able to do the things that God has commanded us to do because God has given us the strength and he gives us the strength to do it by his grace. It's an amazing reality. It's reflected in this poem that some of you may know. Sometimes it's been attributed to John Bunyan, but we don't really know who wrote it. But whoever wrote it, it reads like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Do you see how beautifully that conveys this new reality that comes with this new commandment to love one another? God gives us the ability to keep his commandments. And so through and through and from beginning to end, it's a work of grace. And so how does this practically play out in our lives then? Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Very simply, the thing that differentiates us from the rest of the world the thing that shows the world and shows us that we are really in Christ and, and abiding in him and walking in the light 
is the way in which we treat one another, the way in which we share this life together. When our life is marked by love for one another, it's a testimony that Christ is indeed working in us. It's a testimony that we indeed have come to know him. Jesus told his disciples that by this sign, all would know, all would know that they are his disciples, that they love one another. And so he too calls us to live in love for one another. We reflect on our world and how different this is from the picture we see in our own world. Think about Titus 3.3. We were talking about this passage earlier in the week, some of uh, Matt and I. And here, Paul characterizes the way of the world, the way in which we once walked. And here in Titus 3.3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was the way in which we lived our lives. That was the manner of our life, the way in which we walked, just like everyone else in the world. And isn't it so, when we look at the world, what do we see? We see people who are unable to resolve their disputes, people who are separating from one another over and over again, over every little disagreement, people who declare that they will never forgive someone for the things that they've done to them. We see it in, our, in the political realm. We see it in schools. We see it in community leadership. We see it in every aspect of our society. Even when people should agree on everything, they find reasons to disagree and to hate each other. Sometimes those reasons are the most mundane things in the world. And that's the darkness. And in that darkness, God is pleased to let a light shine. And that light is seen in the church when the people of God live so differently, when their lives are marked by love for one another, and not hatred, when they never would consider saying the words, I'll never forgive that person, but instead... They're ready to forgive, and when someone comes to them to seek forgiveness, they've already in their minds committed themselves to forgive. They yearn to be reconciled to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They grieve when they see quarrels and conflicts in their midst. They love. They serve. They sacrifice. They care for one another. And in this way, Jesus says, we will know that we have come to know him, and the world will know that we are in him. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be that kind of church. Let us be this kind of people. Not a people who walks in darkness, passing our days away in envy and strife. Not a people who have committed our lives to live in a world that is itself passing away, but people who walk in the light that is now shining and the light that will shine forevermore. Let us do this by committing ourselves to live our lives in love. And in this way we might know that we have come to know him and that we have eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that it is only by your grace that we are able to keep your commandments. We know that 
We have not earned your favor because we're so good at this. For we are not so good at it. But you, O oh Lord, are gracious. And you are forgiving. And you are almighty. Almighty God who is able to do all that you please. And so we pray, Lord, be pleased to work these things in our hearts. Be pleased to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit which comes through abiding in Christ. Make it evident in our lives so that all might see and give glory to you. All might see that you are the one who rules in our midst, who is present among us, who has made yourself known to us. Father, we pray these things with grateful hearts, thanking you for every good gift that has come to us. These things we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.